Hi, I'm Bob Sewell. I'm a lawyer. In fact, I'm a partner at the law firm at Davis Miles McGuire Gardner. I started this podcast because my clients always ask me, is that even legal? I want to discuss on this podcast how the law affects us and changes our daily lives. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it is meaningful to you, and I hope you learn from it. Thank you. I want to welcome you to the show, Is That Even Legal? On this podcast, we discuss what's legal, and today we're discussing what's legal with regard to immigration law. Today's guest is Josh Deere. Josh Deere is a friend of mine. He practices law in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He went to the University of Tennessee, and he's an expert on immigration law. Josh, welcome to the show. Bob, how are we doing? I'm glad to be here. We're doing pretty good. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. You know, the reason why I wanted to have you on is I saw a picture on your Instagram feed, and it was of you and a family that just got legal status, a particular legal status for the country to come to be here in the country legally. And they were grinning from ear to ear. You were grinning from ear to ear. It looked like a joyous event. And and frankly, I was I was intrigued. I wanted to hear more. What tell me about that picture or what's it like for your clients? Well, um, one of the things that I mean, we have quite a few of those pictures on our website. One of the things that 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 is important to remember, I guess, about immigration law is sometimes those pictures come after a lot of hard work and turmoil and and stress and stuff. Um, some of these immigration cases last two, three years. Um, so a lot of times when these clients come in to hire me, I realize we're going to become pretty good friends or maybe enemies. I don't know after, after some time, but they're uh, long, stressful cases. And, you know, Bob, as you know, in the law, everybody, well, every case, there's, there's a, there are real people behind every case. But yeah. that's really kind of up front and center in immigration law. These are real people. Um, and oftentimes they've been through horrific, horrific things. And uh, so a lot of times what you're seeing are people, in fact, I think the couple you're referring to, I, I believe that she got her green card, which is a permanent resident status through marriage to a U.S. citizen. They've got a couple kids um, it's like everything that's supposed to go right in immigration law, you know, goes right in a case like that. And it's a fairy tale happy ending. But what you don't see, it's kind of behind the scenes, really, in the case like that is, you know, this person, and I'm not saying this individual in particular, but that person may have come from horrific, abusive um, backgrounds. They may have come from parts of the world where uh, not only do they not have the, some of the blessings and advantages that you and I have, but um, you're lucky to live past 20 years old in some of these areas. Tell me about what you're seeing in your practice. What type of people are coming and wanting to immigrate or receive some sort of status? What's going on? Why are they coming? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I've said it before, if I were a multimillionaire, I'd travel the world. I love to see different places and cultures. I'm not a multimillionaire um, yet. I haven't figured that out. Hopefully you'll let me know how that goes, Bob. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> but, 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 I, but what I do get is I do get to have all these people from all over the world come to me. 
So it's not uncommon in a day for me to sit down with someone from Mexico, from um, Honduras, from Colombia, but also from Korea or Russia or uh, Ireland, or I have a lot of clients from the Middle East, a lot from Nepal. I have a lot of clients from Iraq, for example. Um, And so that's a pretty cool part of it. Um, To say where they're coming from and who, you know, who's coming that is as diverse as the people themselves. They're, they're coming for all kinds of different reasons. Um, some are coming because they've got a million dollars to invest in a high, high enterprise business in this country. Others are coming because um, their moms and their dads and their, maybe their uncles and brothers and sisters may have all been murdered by a cartel and they have no, nowhere left to turn. So they come here to try and survive, you know? So have you seen that the latter? A bunch. I mean, almost daily. Tell me um, for example, I have tons of clients from Central America, Honduras, Guatemala, uh, El Salvador, um, in parts of Mexico. That part of the world's in trouble right now, and it has been for a little while. And um, let me tell you a very common story, a very common scenario that I see all the time. This is not once a year. This is all the time. In those countries, in a lot of those countries, especially in the really poor areas, it's very common for a lot of these areas are ruled by either cartel or just small gangs, local gangs. And these are some evil, evil people. And if you have a son, if you're a parent, you have a son who reaches around 11, 12 years old, very commonly, uh, almost all of those kids will become targets of the gangs to join the local gang. And they basically tell them, look, you join up with us um, or we are going to maybe, you know, beat you, kill you. We're going to rob you. We're going to harass you. Um, But in addition to that, we're probably going to kill your mom and your dad. Um, I've had several clients who've had their houses burned to the ground. Uh, I had one client in particular who um, was standing in the, because his brother refused to pay one of these mafia style, like monthly payments, you know. Uh, the gang drove by, shot his dad right in front of him. He was behind the truck in their front yard, essentially. And he ducked down behind the wheel. And the only reason why he didn't get shot, they were shooting under the car and it actually missed And they were hitting the tire and the wheel. So they didn't get to him that night. He went home, grabbed his wife and their kids. And they said, we got to do something. And as they're trying to figure out what to do, people come by and burn their house to the ground right in front of them. So what are they supposed to do? So they came to the United States. It's very easy to pass judgment on them and say they didn't enter the United States correctly, et cetera, et cetera. But, but what are you going to do? Um, so I mentioned the 12 year old boys, 12 year old girls, even more horrific. It's very common for when the girls, when they hit about 12, 13 years old, to become targets of the gangs, but not to join, but to become the girlfriends of mostly, usually the leaders, the local leaders of these gangs. Uh, they will take these girls um, sometimes by force, um, or they will, you know, coer- basically tell them you come, or again, we're going to kidnap you, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your parents, we're going to kill your brothers and sisters, um, and they'll take the girls. The girls essentially become sexual slaves of the gangs and the gang leaders and they're passed around um, and, and they, may, they may be passed around for several years until um, 
they don't strike the fancy anymore of the gang leader or they find someone new or whatever it is. And then they often discard these girls. Um, happens all the time where they find these girls' bodies um, on paths outside of town in the desert, uh, beheaded, um, dismembered. It happens all the time. Um, so this is absolutely horrific. It's 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 hard to stomach. I don't want to sound like I'm callous to it, but I've heard it over and over and over again. And they're not just stories. You can go and research this stuff. Um, you know, for example, the State Department puts out an annual report on human rights violations. Um, Amnesty International does the same thing. You can go read about these. Uh, happens all the time. And these are folks that are sitting in my office. And they're sitting in my office with their kids. Um, I'm looking across the table at a mom and a dad and a 12-year-old little girl. And I'm realizing that little girl, if they weren't here, she'd probably be the girlfriend. I'm, I'm looking at her in her face. And she's sweet as she can be, innocent, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, she's a child. And would be the girlfriend of a gang member if it, if it weren't for um, them coming to the United States. So you have to ask yourself as, as a human being, as a parent, um, what would you do? And, and so I understand there are both sides. I understand completely this idea of law and order. I understand this idea of we need to have sovereignty as a nation. I, I get it. But I don't think there's very many of us that wouldn't do the exact same thing if we knew that our 12-year-old daughter were facing that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not an academic, it's not an academic uh, enterprise for people like your clients. I mean, it's rubber meets the road. What are you going to do? How are you practically, practically going to handle it? Uh, yeah, those are not easy decisions. And you're not thinking necessarily with, hey, what's legal, what's not legal, you're thinking, what can I do to survive? I mean, it's a totally different analysis when you're dealing with your kids and you're dealing with a survival situation. Let me ask you, immigration system, is it complicated? Uh, very, very complicated. Um, what's going on? Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons. Um, I've, I've practiced in a lot of different areas of law. This may be the most complex. I've uh, recently, we're seeing, I've seen a handful of extremely good, well-respected immigration lawyers throw up their hands and say, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. Um, the, the government's, sorry? Why? Why are they doing that? The government is making, it is incredibly complicated and difficult anyway. You're fighting an uphill battle anyway. Um, but the government recently is making it so in, they're doing things that are completely arbitrary. Like, like we just got a case, we sent out a case about a month and a half ago, um, an application for some kind of immigration benefit for a client. And, and there's some forms that are involved. The case got rejected and sent back to us. And when we opened it up on the cover letter from the government saying why it was rejected, it said, the person you failed to put the person's last name and their address. We open up the packet on the front page is where they're talking about. And there clear as day is their name and their address. I mean, we think they're, we don't know. There's a lot of conspiracy theories as to what's going on, but they're just making it difficult. Um, so in, in that case though, it's either going to be ignorance, incompetence, 
um, or something else, something more nefarious, right? All of the above. And, and you can talk to all the other immigration attorneys around and they'll tell you, um, well, there's all kinds of theories. All right. So, but back to your question, really, what, what makes it so complicated? I mean, it's such a hot button issue because like I said, there's these competing sides. There's these ideas. Like on one hand, there's this humanitarian perspective of, like I just told you, these people come from extremely difficult circumstances. Um, what about situations where families come and they bring a child when he's two years old or one years old, child has no choice in the matter. Sudden, and next thing you know, well, not next thing you know, but 20 years later, I've sat down with people who um, were from countries that they don't even speak the language. They've never been there except when they were one year old, but their parents brought them here. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear them, the dreamers, they call these kids. Um, you know, what do you do with people like that? If, if you apply strict rule of law, they have to go back to their country. But I've had people in my office crying saying, I've, I've never even been to Peru, much less another Spanish-speaking country, nor do I even speak the language. And I just surely don't know anyone there. Here, I've graduated from high school. I've you know, moved on to college. I've got a great job. I'm, I'm married now. I have kids. What do I do? You know what I mean? So, um, but. On the other hand, I, I, I absolutely understand this perspective of the rule of law, of our nation's sovereignty, of, of needing to protect our borders. So the, the stickiness comes in, how do you approach immigration in a way that recognizes and respects kind of both, both sides of that coin? Does right. that make sense? Oh, it totally makes sense. I mean, you know... You have to have an orderly system. It has to be orderly. You know, and you have to you have to have some defined rules about who's in and who's out. I mean, that makes sense to me. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about though, I hear a lot of is people will say, Well, why can't you just get in line? You know, why do you have to come here illegally? Just get in line and you know, come here legally. What do you think about that? I hear that a lot. Um, and that a lot of times is perpetuated by the media. Um, the media can be an absolute mess. Uh, it is an absolute mess of the way it comes, you know, whether it comes from one side or the other, the way that they report on this stuff, the way they spin it. Um, me, I used to, what's that? I'll be right there. I just, I could not agree more. I one time did a television interview and it was one of the reasons why I started this podcast, but I did this television interview and he asked me a complicated legal question. The, and he says, um, well, what happened in this case? And I said, well, let me explain. And I start to explain it. And I'm thinking I'm given like a, as third grade perspective. And he comes back and he says, Bob, this is television. Give me a soundbite that I could deal with. And I'm like, really? I mean, you just asked me what happened in a constitutional law case. You just asked me, and he's saying, just give me a soundbite. And, and I see that with the immigration process, too, because you, these talking heads, they don't know what they're talking about. No. They, no, and, and I, you know, I used to be pretty far on one side of the political spectrum. And um, until I got really into immigration law, 
about a decade or so ago, and and I and I realized what I was seeing on the news was such garbage. I mean, it was just not even close. What I tell people a lot of the times, like friends or whatever, is if 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 you have a strong political opinion, and I don't want to get political here, but if you have a strong opinion on something, such as immigration law, that's very controversial, and you think you have your opinion, and and if your opinion matches up with Fox News, MSNBC, CNN, whatever it is, then you're probably wrong because it's just not the way it really is. You know what I mean? These issues are just so much more complicated. Um, You asked, oh, sorry, go ahead. What about the line? Is there a line? Do I get in line somewhere? Um, I like to think that it would be nice if there were some just long line and at the end of it, they're handing out citizenship certificates, but it just doesn't happen that way. Citizenship, we hear a lot about, well, this person wants to become a citizen, et cetera. Citizenship itself is like the, the end of the road in a very long, complicated road. It's kind of the final step in a long road of different uh, possible like legal statuses along the way. Immigration law can best be described as like a pigeonhole process. There are tons and tons of different categories based upon different statuses, et cetera, et cetera. My job as an immigration lawyer is to kind of, when I talk to you and I talk to your circumstances, hear your circumstances, figure out which one of those pigeonholes could you potentially fit in and then try and fashion a case that kind of paints the picture that like, uh, I had a mentor that used to say, my job is to paint an elephant to look like an elephant. And, and so in other words, to kind of get you shoved into one of these categories. Some of those categories are short-term legal statuses. Some of them are long-term. So really, becoming a citizen is not even the most difficult. It's kind of becoming, for example, what you really want to do is become a lawful permanent resident or a green card. Everybody's heard of a green card. Ironically, you may not know this. They're not green. But uh, No disappointment. What's that? That is not green, and that's so disappointing to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it's like, why not just make it green? We mess up everything else in the immigration law. Why not make the cards green, right? <laughs> but, um, for example, there's a lot of different kinds of temporary statuses. If you're outside the United States, you may be trying to enter the United States legally. You can do so on multiple different kinds of visas. There's tourist visas or visitor's visas. Um, there's like a short-term business visa that you could ha- get to, for example, come to the U.S. to go to a conference or a business meeting or something like that. There's student visas that you can come here to study on, a religious visa for someone to come and preach at a church or a synagogue or, or whatever. Um, there's a visa for fiancés who want to come and get married to their spouse, perfectly legal. Um, there are investor visas for people that have a chunk of change they're willing to come here and um, kind of a more, a little bit more of a long-term visa. Um, there are visas for, I've done visas for professional baseball players, professional golfers, um, people, ballerinas, dancers, performers, musicians. Um, these are all the temporary kind. There's visas for people who become a victim of crime in the United States. And the government wants, for example, prior to, it's called a U visa. Prior to that visa, Immigrants who were victimized as cr- uh, in crimes, uh, they, they weren't motivated to go go turn the, to go report it to the police because they're scared of having contact with the police. Now, this kind of visa uh, uh, not only encourages them, 
Um, it also encourages them to stick around, to testify, to participate in the investigation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there are more long-term visas, long-term statuses. Like if you marry a U.S. citizen, you can get your green card and stay here permanently. If you're the ch minor child of a U.S. citizen, but you weren't born in the U.S., you can get a green card. Um, if you are the parent of an adult U.S. citizen, you can apply for that. Uh, there's asylum, which we could talk about asylum for the next 10 hours. Um, it's an absolute mess, but that is a way to eventually get your permanent resident, your green card. And that's um, when you say that you are a victim of some sort of uh, crimes or... The idea of asylum is that you have a, a credible fear to return to your home country because you're in significant danger, uh, persecution of... of, of, of torture of death, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you can prove that, there's a lot of people that are in that category, but they have made it so nuanced and so segmented and difficult that uh, even though there's a lot of people that you would think would qualify for asylum, it's actually extremely difficult and the success rates are very low. Um, there's a lot of people that talk about, oh, people come and cheat the asylum system. Well, they may try, but it's it, it, the success rate for asylum is very low. Um, one other thing I would mention is um, there's a whole lot of types of employment-based uh, and employment business-based ways to get your green card. One of the things I think our country is messing up, maybe worse than any other area is they're making it so difficult for the world's most, the world's brightest and most talented people to come here and, and stay. We, we, we have people from all over the world, India, uh, Iraq, Africa, um, who are coming here, Europe, coming and studying at MIT, Harvard. They're coming and getting the, the, you know, the STEM fields, the extremely complex uh, areas, they're becoming experts in computer science, technology, mathematics. Um, they can come here and get their degree. It's not that difficult to do that. But then we're making it extremely difficult for them to stay in this country. Yeah, that seems odd to me because one of the things we want to do in this country, and it's, this sounds brutal, and I know that, but Every country, a lot of countries will complain about brain drains. Other countries, they where the U.S. principally, a lot, just the Western nations generally, though, will be will take from these countries the best, the brightest, the most educated, and they'll bring them here to the United States. And frankly, it's where we've gotten a lot of technology. It's where we've gotten a lot of innovation. I mean it. It's amazing to think about, you know, the amount of innovation that has come out of these populations that basically we've taken from other countries in the U.S. You know, and I know that's, I'm, I'm speaking of as a, you know, an American, right? You know, I mean, I, I like the idea of people, the best and the brightest coming to this country. Uh, I know that our listeners outside of the country are not going to like this because we do have quite a bit of listenership outside of this country, but I like that idea personally. Right. But it's, it seems odd to me that we would put roadblocks or in front of that, that path. Tell me about I mean, what's going on. 
I mean, if you think about, for example, a guy, you know, guys that'll come here, they bring their families, um, they come and they study and they get a PhD or a master's in, in computer science. Um, these guys are, and, and by the way, I have some companies that are clients that are, 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 are very, very high tech computer companies and they can't find talent. Um, th- th- they're just blown away by, they're like, look, we can go interview these kids all the time from, from again, Harvard, from, from extremely, uh, Stanford, you know, extremely prestigious places. Uh, and they would hire them and they would pay them well. And by the way, they'd make a ton of money off this talent. Um, but these people are like, you know, it, it takes a year and a half, two years to get the stupid process, um, you know, done through the government. And then they don't get for some dumb technicality or they just flat out don't qualify. They get sent back to their country. These aren't people committing crimes. They're not people that are, you know, why would we invest as much as we invest in these people as a country and as an educational system and then boot them out, not let them come back. But specifically what you're saying is, and, and from what I understand is that, it takes a, the, the roadblock to bring these best and the brightest is number one time. How do we get them through the process in a timely manner? So you're seeing a, a long time frame. But I also understand that there's just a limited number of people that qualify, that like they only have a certain numbers that are allowed. Um well, okay, so yes, but 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 that the that could be misunderstood as saying there's only a limited number of people that or merit, or merit that, that under the system that they're, they merit it in reality. So immigration to be understood, you hear a lot about every four years or so. It seems like we hear about um, comprehensive immigration reform. We need comprehensive immigration reform. That's a, that's a talking point, a hot button on the news. Why is that the way it's discussed? Well, kind of like our tax code. Immigration law is extremely complex. It's extremely nuanced. And, but the problem is it wasn't just passed in one moment. It has been a piecemeal little bit here, a little bit there, little, you know, and, and most of those little, little bits here, a little bit there have come from some kind of a lobby or some kind of a, a you know, political, um, someone trying to, 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 to satisfy constituents or something like that. So, and, and so what happens is it, this doesn't necessarily match up with this or a lot of it is nonsensical. It makes no sense. So tell me about a roadblock then for the, for this type of visa. Well, okay. So for that type of visa, one time, um, one is time. what's another one? One of the things that we do is, is in the employment-based sector, for example, there is a kind of a threshold hurdle that you have to get over before you ever get to the actual application itself. And that is deploy, applying through the Department of Labor for what it's called a PERM. Now, it used to be called a labor certification, but the idea is you have to apply as a company and show that no one meets the qualifications that they're, you're not taking jobs away from U.S. citizens. Well, that's 
in theory, that is fine. In theory, that makes some sense. Um, but you're, you know, you have these companies that are now advertising this position. Um, they have to conduct interviews. They don't have to hire these people, but they have to, at a minimum, conduct interviews. Um, and then you have these set uh, pay rates, et cetera, et cetera, that they have to pay, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it, it's that system is messed up. It doesn't really determine if there are U.S. you know U.S. citizen talent out there. And let me tell you something. Those particular companies that I'm talking about that I've worked with have said, look, if we could hire U.S. citizens, we would love, you think we want to pay all this extra, pay the attorneys to do all this visa process? You think we want to go through all this difficulty and complication? If we could hire U.S. citizens, we would love to. The talent is not there. It doesn't exist. And so. When certain fields, there's a very limited talent pool. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, anyway, it, it, th- th- there's a lot of things. There's a lot of problems. There's a lot of in and outs and stuff like that. Um, it, it sounds like there's, fr- frankly, it, it sounds like the immigration system is, one, complex, two, highly technical, and, and number three, that it, it really is a person-specific process that is you look at the person you say what their situation is and then you say okay what avenue could i take for said person is that what i'm hearing yeah it is and you know as you're asking that question i was thinking back to the question about get in line um let me let me let me give you an example of what some of these lines might be we have these visa categories that we've set up um, for example, if you are the child of a, and I, I'm, I'm throwing out numbers here. I could look it up and be more specific, but I'm going to give you some examples. If you are the child of, uh, uh, of a U.S. citizen that in your minor, you can, you can apply. And once it's approved, you can enter the U.S. No questions asked. You have a green card. If you're the child of a permanent resident, which is a green card holder, um, you could be approved, but your waiting period, that visa category may be behind by eight years, nine years, 11 years. We have some visa categories that are behind by 23 years. So, so, and, and here's what's crazy. In those categories, if you're from Mexico, you may be behind 16 years. If you're from India, you may be behind 14 years. If you're from Sweden or Japan or Brazil, you may be behind two years. So it's just all over the place. And so to tell people, get in line, well, let's say your brother, one of the categories is a U.S. citizen brother petitioning for a sibling. Some of those categories in some countries, like I said, 23 years behind. Well, are you really telling, I mean, what about that person who is trying to do it 100% legally, 100% correct? And you say to them, yeah, you can do it 100% correct. Your family's here in the United States. You can do it 100% correct. We're going to file your petition. It will get approved in six months, but there won't be a visa available for you for 23 years. (laughs) 
I mean, what's the point of that? Now, let me give you one other example. A totally one of the one of the examples of the dumbest areas of immigration law. If you are the minor child, okay. So if I marry a U.S. citizen, I marry you. Let's say. Okay. Um, I think you're great, Bob. Okay, thanks. I marry you. I'm a U.S. Uh, this is not getting weird at all right now. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> let's say you're you're a, you're an immigrant. I'm a U.S. citizen. We get married. You have minor children, right? Okay. Yeah. If I marry you and you're living in Botswana, and I'm gonna bring you into the United States. I'm not allowed to include your two minor children as derivatives of your application. It's a totally separate case for those kids, okay? If, I, if, I, if I'm a citizen, same scenario, I am a permanent resident, I have a green card, you live in Botswana, you have two minor children. I can petition for you, same as before, and I can include your kids on the petition as derivatives. <laughs> why? There's not one person alive that can explain why. It's, that's just a piecemeal garbage jargon thing that happened once upon a time. We've talked, so, about, we've talked about there being real stories. Yeah. The real people. I want to sum this up. I want to, I want to wrap up the podcast today, but there's, these are real stories. Tell me the real story of someone. Okay. I'm going to tell you about a a kid that we worked with a few years ago. Um, We're going to call him, he's from Mexico. I'm going to call him um, Pedro. That's not his name. Um, Pedro came to the United States when he was about 10. Um, He came with his mom. They came from an extremely abusive household. Father was horrific. Um, Father beat mom all the time, beat the son all the time. Pedro tells the story of, he remembers when he was about 10 years old, mom finally said, we've got to get out of here. He tells the story of of, of going, uh, you know, train, bus, all this kind of stuff all the way across the country. Um, He he tells the story of crossing the desert uh, with his mom. They walked a day or two through the desert. Uh, He said he remembers having no water and finally people, they got robbed along the way. Um, They had nothing, had no money. Um, He said he remembers when he was close to the border, he sat down at one point in the evening and he took off his shoes and he says he remembers that when he took off his shoes, his feet were numb, but he remembers his shoes sticking to us. He couldn't pull them off. And he, he looked down at his, at his feet. He didn't have any socks. He looked down at his feet and his feet were a dark, dark, almost black color. And he realized that he was, they were, he was covered in dried blood. As a 10 year old kid, they got into the United States. fast forward about seven years. Pedro is 17 years old. Um, Pedro reads um, quantum theory and astrophysics for fun. (laughs) Um, He is at about 15 years old. He has so far surpassed his professors at all of his schools, teachers at all of his schools 
that they're sending him up to the university to hang out with the science professors, kind of like Goodwill Hunting. He he has um, uh, he is brilliant beyond any ability for for me to ever comprehend. Um, real kind of quiet kid, looks kind of like a rock and roll kid, listens to headphones, you know, looks like your typical long hair, whatever. Um, he had at the time, uh, when we were working with him, he had been invited to go, he had already been to several national competitions, academic competitions, blown people out of the water. Uh, he was sitting on an invitation to go to Paris, France for free, completely paid for, um, because he's so brilliant. Um, he, 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 I mean, he, he had a 4.3 GPA, whatever it was. I can't remember what he scored in the ACT, but it was ridiculous. Um, a nice kid too. Um, but he was illegal. His mom was quote unquote illegal. Now people don't like that term, et cetera, but both undocumented. He couldn't go to France for this competition because he had no way to get back in. Um, we worked on that and we got him back in through the DACA program, a totally different story. But the point is, is, um, you know, that's a real human being. Well, you could say he had no choice in the matter of coming to the United States. You know, his mom brought him. He didn't even know he was illegal or whatever um, until he is an absolute brilliant genius. He was also facing the possibility of going to the local community college or kind of a second rate school because he couldn't, you know, he, he was not able to pay for much less even get into some of these universities at that time because it was, he, he didn't have any legal status. Um, again, I think we resolved a lot of that, but uh, the point is, is, you know, on one hand, you have to consider this kid having no choice in the matter, came to the United States, uh, no choice in the matter. Two, he's an absolute brilliant addition to our society here. But three, you also have to consider, okay, what do we say? Okay, well, let's make an exception for him as a dreamer, as a dream act kid, whatever. But what about the mom who brought him here, one, to save his life, but two, who raised a kid like that? A mom with zero education, a mom with zero capability, um, uh, academically, let's say. Um, she came here and, you know, cleaned houses and worked terrible jobs so her kid could, you know, go on and talk quantum theory and physics with professors in college. So, I mean, you know, she deserves some consideration as well. Um, I got a bunch of stories like that. Yeah, you know, I, I, and, I and I appreciate what you shared. And, and I appreciate the way you practice law. You've always practiced law with your heart. Um, You've always done that. You've always cared about your clients. It's one of the things I admire most about Josh Deere is that it's not just an academic enterprise for Josh. It's real. It's personal. He, he is working hard for clients and who have real issues. And, but I also wanted to highlight, and, and I knew you were the right guy to do this, just how important this process is you know, we, we kick it around like a football and, but we don't, we don't ever look at it from the human perspective. And I totally get 
the sovereignty of nations issue. I totally get the orderly process. I get all that. I think it's important. We cannot ever turn away from that. Um, but we, similarly, we have to realize that it's not just about, you know, it's not just about, you know, rules and regulations. It's about people. That's what we're addressing, the people with these rules and regulations. So, Josh, I want to thank you for coming on the show, sharing your insights into the law and sharing your stories. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been the podcast, Is That Even Legal? A discussion of what's legal. Just as a reminder, this is not legal advice for you. This is general information. It's meant to be educational. If you have specific legal needs, don't be afraid to reach out to an attorney to get good legal advice. Attorneys are lovable. They're fun. They want to hear from you. See you next time.